Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's head down to Washington, D.C. Nathan Dean, it's his task to follow and analyze all the shenanigans coming from our good friends uh, in the halls of Congress. He's a senior analyst for U.S. government uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Nathan, you're joining us by uh, Zoom. We appreciate that. My question is, is this government going to be able to fund itself? Are we going to get a shutdown at the end of this month? Can you give us a timeline and kind of where we are here? Yeah, so, you know, the government's only back for, uh, you know, eight to ten days, you know, working days until this uh, deadline of September 30th. And uh, like you said, you know, we it's highly likely that we're going to end up with a government shutdown. Uh, now, whether this is a 30-day shutdown like we saw under President Trump's administration, probably not be the case. You know, Speaker McCarthy says uh, that he wants to kick the can to early December to give more time over negotiations. But the note that we just put out on the terminal this morning essentially states that if you do have a shutdown, both markets and defense contractors shouldn't be all that concerned. Uh, you know, during that 30-day shutdown under President Trump, the markets didn't react all that well in the first couple of days. But then once, real, once people realized the economic uh, you know, impact isn't all that great, markets pretty much just moved beyond. Same thing with defense contractors. If you're Boeing or you know, Raytheon and so forth like that, you know, your contracts are already funded in. They're funded in on a long-term basis. So the real big impact for a government shutdown, if it lasts uh, more than a week or two, is that folks like me in Washington, D.C. can't take their kids to the zoo. Well, what about um, federal employees? Will they still get paychecks every two weeks or however that works? I mean, if you work at no, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics putting together the CPI, for example, are you still going to get paid? So what they do is they deem employees to be essential and non-essential. Uh, if you're an essential employee, it's about 15% of the U.S. workforce. Obviously, oh, that's great. People, Only 15% yeah. of the people that we employ are essential. Everybody yeah, else we it, could do without. Exactly. So, but you know, it, what's what's happened in the past is when the shutdown is over. Uh, the Congress will actually pass a resolution or pass a bill that provides retroactive back pay. So if you're shut down for a couple of weeks, obviously that's not going to be good if you're living paycheck to paycheck, but you will get that pay back. That is not the case for smaller contractors. So if you work for a contracting agency and your agency uh, you know, decides to shut down, all of a sudden uh, you're not going to get that pay back unless the contractor itself pays you back. You're not going to get any recourse from the government. You know, I should also note that, you know, uh, even though I took light of the situation with the zoo, certain things like economic releases, BLS, you know, so forth like that, those eventually could be delayed, which and then also could cause some, uh, you know, confusion and disruption to the traders that are relying on that information. Well, what about these things you guys down in Washington, D.C. call continuing resolutions or CR? Can't we use one of those thingamajigs? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I think is going to happen here. You know, the appropriations process is a 12 bill process and they've only got an agreement on one. They have to pass 11 essentially in the next month. So what they're going to do is they're going to hit this continuing resolution. The challenge is, is that Speaker McCarthy has had several people in the House Freedom Caucus just say, look, I'm not going to vote for any continuing resolution unless you defund the FBI or you, uh, you know, implement any of these policies that has no chance whatsoever with President Biden in the Senate under Democratic control. So what's going to happen here is Speaker McCarthy's in a hard place. He's got to figure out a way to pass up continuing resolution, probably to early December, maybe next year, but probably early December, using Democratic support. And that's just something that he's not going to be able to get to until the last moment. So you're looking at either a shutdown will occur, you know, I'm guessing less than five days uh, but, you know, negotiations are going to go way up to the high wire and you're going to see constant headlines over the next two to three weeks of shutdown angst, shutdown angst and more shutdown angst. It's just kooky to me how much the far right and the far left have in common. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, just... the lefties wanted to defund the police and now the Freedom Caucus wants to defund the <laughs> FBI. Exactly. I mean, do we not need law enforcement in this country? I thought the FBI were the good guys. All right. What else besides the shutdown is Congress focused on here? We got they're going to actually work for a solid eight days good for them. But what else do they have to get done here? So, you know, you're going to see a lot of negotiations, or at least, you know, we've heard uh, the House Financial Services Chairman, Patrick Henry say that he wants to try and schedule a vote on crypto legislation. I'm not sure and many of that's going to get there in September. I mean, you have to reauthorize the FAA. The Farm Bill exp expiration is also on September 30th. So for the rest of the month, you're going to see a lot of people try things, but it's going to be focused on this government shutdown. Now, one thing that came out last week that was interesting is that Bloomberg News reported that the Department of Health and Human Services is going to recommend changing marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. Now we're talking. Uh, we are going... You know, that is a big deal for the marijuana industry. And so we're going to be looking to see what steps come from the DEA. They are the ones that are going to have to make this decision. And really, we're looking to see if they get this done in 2024 or is this going to be a multi-year process. That's really key for the marijuana stocks. Schedule one drugs include like heroin and fentanyl. And that's where marijuana is. And that's where, that's where they have had weed for <laughs> decades now, you know, because, you know, item nine. Uh, all right, so uh, that's something that's probably not going to happen. Salt, any any movement on salt at all, Nathan? I got to always ask ask you the uh, state and local tax deduction question. Yeah, you know, I, I hit my phone always before these hits to see what's going to happen with the salt <laughs> folks around town. But uh, this is laying the groundwork. Look, the salt deduction is going to expire. Uh, when the Trump tax cuts expire, that's not going to be or that's actually coming up fairly soon. Uh, but this is one of those situations where you have lawmakers from New York and New Jersey uh, going out there and saying, look, we're going to fight tooth and nail uh, to try and get salt back. I mean, they're even saying we would just love to take a pinch of salt. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, what's going to happen here is if you're going to, you know, the salt deduction brought a lot of money back to the government or getting rid of the salt deduction brought a lot of money back to the government. That is money that can be used elsewhere. And there are a lot of lawmakers like, ooh, we like this New York, New Jersey money. We can use this for something else. So it, we're just, I think the New York and New Jersey lawmakers, the SALT caucus, if you will, are just planting the seeds so that when these negotiations come back closer to the expiration date, you know, they can fight tooth and nail at that point to get some relief back to the, uh, you know, the, the homeowners of the New York City area. Right. Is, this, is this yet another issue on which AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene are in agreement? <laughs> You know, this is going to be one of those issues where it's essentially New York, New Jersey, California, and Illinois against the world. Against everybody. All right. All right. 
I understand we've got some generals and some admirals that need to be approved for senior leadership positions. I thought this stuff just gets done like rubber stamp. What's going on? So this is coming out of Alabama. This is Senator Tuberville, you know, coach, uh, you know, of Auburn. Uh, he's actually holding up uh, these promotions in, in response to uh, a federal policy related to abortion. And this is a classic standoff between the White House and one senator. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen statements from Bloomberg News, the, you know, their interviews with other Republican senators. They wish that Senator Tuberville wasn't doing this. Uh, but this is just a standoff that's going to continue. And, you know, we've seen other uh, statements from both the Department of Defense and so forth that, uh, you know, American security could be harmed. But I don't think we've seen any end in sight. Both sides are pretty dug in. And so this is just one of those cases where uh, I'm not exactly sure if there's a resolution anytime soon. I mean, poor Nathan Dean's got to analyze and focus on Congress, like for a living. Yeah. That is and brutal. a lot of other stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, the, um, Washington, the stuff. weed decision doesn't come from Congress. That's first going to come from who's the weed decision come from if they push it back to Schedule 3? DEA, right? The, the DEA, yeah. So all right. He's got to we, watch all those agencies. He's got to be careful. You know, the FBI might be defunded. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? All right, Nathan, it's your you got to deal with this stuff. We appreciate it. You're the man. Nathan Dean, senior policy analyst. He covers all the U.S. government stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is our go to person for all. You know, kind of how the sausage is made down there. With Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk global economics here. We're going to go to from China. We might head over to Europe. Who knows where else we'll go? Eddie Vanderwalt, he can go anywhere. Uh, he is a deputy managing equity. Deputy Managing Editor of Markets Live Team from Bloomberg News. I want to ask him about Bitcoin first. Go, boom. So Eddie is an expert on crypto uh, as well. And Eddie, you know, I was off last week, but I still surprise, read the surprise. news. And um, right. I thought it was so exciting for crypto uh, when we found the grayscale SEC decision overturned by an appeals court. So I thought, man, this is great news. Bitcoin, spot mm. Bitcoin ETFs are happening. I'm sure that the underlying asset is surging. I come back in this morning to see it under 26,000. What gives? Bitcoin really is struggling. And it is, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see this happen, right? Because not only did you have that, you've, you're also coming towards uh, the halving of supply next year. Every uh, four years or so, they halve the amount of output um, in, the, in the amount of Bitcoin. And if you see that, you also see an ETF launch bringing in more retail investors, making it easier for people to invest. Bitcoin really should be garnering some momentum going into next year, but it just isn't. And I think part of the reason is that we are seeing higher, um, re or higher real um, interest rates, right? We are seeing interest rates pushing higher and, and therefore, you know, people probably don't have as much speculative money lying around yet. Other speculative assets like, you know, your, your bids on NVIDIA and so on are really doing well. So maybe it's a case of not so much that, um, you know, that, that people don't have the money, 
but but perhaps a little bit more that they that, that the AI story has taken the shine off of cryptocurrencies. I think AI is the new shiny thing, and that's where investor money is going. That's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about that, yep. but that probably makes a lot of sense. All right, Eddie, let's. I want to just go to China here. How concerned are you? How concerned should the global economy be about? Just it seems like day after day, uh, you know, kind of disappointing economic data coming out of China, weakening data coming out of China. How do you put that in perspective? But wait, I thought they were finally giving a stimulus. With well, now, a new well, well, now we got some stimulus triple coming R in. cut. They're yep. giving money to parents of kids and uh, kids of parents. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and look, it's, it's, it's been this machine gun of stimulus, literally. We, we, you know, day after day, you're coming in and you're hearing more and more, more stimulus coming towards the Chinese economy. And yet today, when the moment we got in a little bit of bad data, we got that um, PMI numbers showing that the services sector is slowing down, which we would think would be something that would, would lead to further stimulus in China. What do we see? We see the market actually reacting you know, to the downside and saying, well, this is bad news in China is every bit as bad. Now, you ask how, how, you know, how does it play for the world economy? It's bad for the world economy. It says something bad about the world economy. It says that we are not buying Chinese stuff and we're not exporting it elsewhere. But it is very bad for Europe, right? Because it's, it's you know, and I think that's why we saw uh, Mercedes-Benz perhaps, uh, you know, reacting to the downside today, even though they've got this fairly positive story vis-a-vis -vis Tesla. Um, and the reason is that a lot of their cars go to China. A lot of the high-end equipment that's manufactured, manufactured in Germany and a lot of the French um, luxury goods go to China. So if they are not spending, if their services sector slows down, that's real trouble for Europe. I will say Ola Hellenius is now a little bit more... He's not as bullish on China as he once was. We have a great story. The CEO of Mercedes-Benz uh, on the terminal, even though they have um, you know, a concept car that has long range. Um, it's, Any takeaways? I mean, you well, I, my takeaway is that GM already has that kind of range. You know, the Cadillac Escalade IQ or the Silverado EV, they already have 450 miles of range. It's great to see it in a smaller package, and uh, I think it's cool that Mercedes is doing it, but they're not as bullish on China as they once were. Also, the PMI data on China, this is backwards. If they come out on Sunday or Monday and say, hey, we're going to give money to everybody with kids under three and everybody with parents over three, you know, and we're going <laughs> to cut the uh, foreign reserve requirements at banks from 6% to 4%. So that's all spec, uh, this all stimulative going forward. Why do we care so much about the backward looking data release? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, and, and I, you know, so the, the, the PMI number being focused on the services sector, which is more important for the Chinese economy than the manufacturing is because they want to pivot away a little bit towards the services sector, right? So I think as long as we, uh, uh, that should be a net positive because it should mean that they are more likely to deliver even more stimulus if more is needed down the road, right? It shows that this, this hurts the part, of the, of the, the part of the economy that they are most concerned about is under pressure and as long as that's the case you know stimulus will keep coming but i think the drop, the, mach drop the machine gun eddie and grab a bazooka you know right absolutely but 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 this and and you know what if they did bring the bazooka if they did say hey here's this massive stimulus package all of these things that we've talked about over the last few weeks and they they delivered all of that in one day the markets would have said wow shock and awe and would have responded accordingly. But because it's a kind of drip feed, it, it, it just doesn't have that uh, momentous feel to it. 
But I do think that this is more of what we're seeing today is more about reading what the market sentiment on China is than about what the outlook is. Because I don't think the outlook has changed today. What you're saying is true, right? The, the PMI data is slightly more backward looking than the, than, than the, the fresh stimulus. But we are, we, are, we are seeing something about the market wants to be negative because the market doesn't buy the China story at the moment. Well, I mean, it, one of the things that I think we're trying to get a grip of is how bad is the real estate uh, issue and the financing and of the real estate economy in China. How bad is it? How bad could it get? Yeah, and it is really bad, right? And I think most of the stimulus has been targeted at that sector. Now, we had a Country Garden, which is one of their big property developers, who was very much distressed and still owes something yep. like $187 billion worth of outstanding bonds. Now, they met payment on a, a part two of their outstanding bonds today um, but but still you know several billion are coming due in the next few months and it's unclear whether they'll be able to meet most or any of that the market currently pricing their bonds at something like you know nine cents to the dollar or 14 cents to the dollar depending mm. um, but you know so so th this is this is but but the 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 uh, the authorities have targeted a lot of stimulus at that sector. What is interesting that they have done of late is that they've pivoted also to things like the stock market, right? So clearly stimulating the stock market by removing um, some of the costs and some of the taxes associated with that. And if you're seeing the authorities really targeting the stock market, it tells you something about what they want to do to sentiment. It tells you something that they, you know, when they're targeting the, 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 the building sector, that tells you something about what they want to do to the economy. When, they, when they're targeting the... Um, the stock market, it tells you that they're really worried about sentiment, too. Yep. Hey, Eddie, you know, everybody I know, it seems like, with the notable exception to John Tucker, vacationed in Europe this summer. What's the economy like in Europe these days? Yeah, it's mixed, right? I mean, Europe is slowing down, no doubt. Europe is struggling at the moment. We're seeing our manufacturing, uh, you know, deep below below 50 in the, on the PMIs. And we're seeing now with the latest revisions that we got in today, uh, numbers in Europe have all been below 50. Europe has really been struggling and it just hasn't been able to get, gain that traction. Now, the, the situation in Europe is a little, a little bit different from the, from the, from the US, whereas the, uh, the Fed has a dual mandate, growth and, and, and inflation. In Europe, the central banks are supposed to be, uh, the, the ECB is supposed to be focused 100% on uh, inflation. Yep. And that means that, 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 that you know, they, they're probably putting more pressure on the economy than they would have otherwise. Now, whether they, they will keep that line, if they're you know, coming to see um, real yep. trouble, real structural trouble in the Eurozone, none of that we're seeing yet. But if that's the case, I think, I think the ECB will, will start to rethink their policy. Despite inflation. Right. I don't know. I mean, all those U.S. I mean, vacation dollars being spent in the U.S. Well, hotel uh, prices are Crazy. very high. You know, restaurants Crazy. have been able to get yeah. a high ticket price. Yeah. But. All right. All right. I, I stayed on the Jersey Shore. I did just fine. Eddie Vanderwalt, uh, Deputy Managing Editor of Markets Life Team of Bloomberg News. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And September's we head towards the end of the year. Part of that is the IPO space. And there is one 
of note that's uh, recently hit the tape, uh, Arm is coming up with a big IPO. So let's get a, the latest on that. Bailey Lipschultz covers all the markets, including IPOs and spinoffs and all that kind of fun stuff. And for a time there, even SPACs. He does that stuff for Bloomberg News. I'm what, psyched about this conversation. I by know. The way. Well, yeah. I've got a lot of questions here. Me too. First of all, Arm. What is Arm? And tell us about the deal. Arm is a chip designer, so they essentially sell chip blueprints to customers like NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, you name it, Samsung. So when uh, they sell a chip, they pay a royalty fee to ARM. So ARM really okay. just pulls together those royalties. It'll be, it's expected to be based on the terms they laid out this morning, uh, the largest IPO on a US exchange since Rivian in late 2021. So larger than Kenview, which was nice. the consumer health spinoff split off from J&J earlier this year, which raised about $4.4 billion. So ARM expected now uh, to raise up to $4.87 billion, but we know uh, That'll probably get higher just based on how most of these IPOs go. Right. You got to add in the green shoe eventually. Well, could you? With the I don't Wall even Street know if we're allowed to say that. You know, we have to. We didn't. We weren't used used to uh, be able to write that. Oh, really? Uh, it was too jargony. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. Bloomberg way. I've been hearing a lot of people today say Arm wanted to raise more. Now Arm's going to raise this. And the fact is, I imagine Arm isn't going to be getting any of this money. Right? Arm doesn't care. Arm is just a pawn for SoftBank. Is that right? <laughs> That's one way to put it. Arm is. Is any, is any are any of these proceeds going to be invested by Arm? No, it is. SoftBank no. is selling okay. about a ten percent. None stake. of the shares are primary shares. They are secondary shares. It's kind of so. And yeah. and 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 SoftBank recently bought twenty five percent of Arm yeah. from the Vision Fund, Explain which SoftBank owns. Yes. So SoftBank, at a higher valuation, much higher. took out a quarter of this company from a fund that it owns. Why? The view from the street and the view from SoftBank is that they wanted to have this all under one umbrella. When you look at the terms laid out in the filing as it detailed that uh, $16 billion deal buying back that 25% stake held by its vision fund, it was part of a bigger switch up. So not really clear kind of what was really Oh, they were like, entirely. we'd like to hold this all under one asset that we own rather than spread out. And we're going to punish ourselves by paying a price much higher than it's worth. I don't buy that, Bailey. <laughs> Are there other people who have stakes in the Vision Fund? Because it sounds to me like SoftBank is trying to pacify some of these other shareholders that have been walloped by huge losses. Yeah, that's the way that you could, the cynic or the uh, Matt Miller view is that you're okay. basically satisfying those LPs. So okay, because it's just never back. explained, right? We always say, oh, SoftBank bought 25% of ARM from its own vision fund. And then we move on in the rest of the story and never say why, which is like, what the? <laughs> I will say that my favorite thing on social media was the Spider-Man meme where it was pointing at each other and it was kind of like Arm, Vision Fund 1, and Masa Sun basically like where this money is moving from one fund to the other fund to satisfy the underlying investors. But nonetheless, it still will be a massive IPO, key for the overall IPO sentiment. Uh, all things aside, which I know there are a number of skeptics as it relates to SoftBank, given the history of investing, big, rode the big wave with Alibaba, but had more underwhelming IPOs, the likes of Uber, obviously WeWork is one that comes to mind, and a number of other investments that went public via SPAC that I wrote about quite a bit when the... the <laughs> well, and not just SoftBank. I mean, you said yourself, this is the first IPO since Rivian. How'd that go for investors? So, I mean, it's down 70% from the offer. That wasn't a rhetorical question. No, exactly. <laughs> Rivian, Rivian looked quite a bit like VinFast, where uh, just pulling up the uh, the chart on the old terminal, uh, priced at 
where did the price at? I mean, so, I remember I mean, Rivian was trading up at got 100. up to 172. Right now, it's at 23 bucks. All right, yeah. all right. So here we are with ARM. Um, every underwriter, basically on Wall Street, is on this deal. What's the, what's up with that? Pretty much everyone except for Morgan Stanley. Okay, that's which a notable exception. A notable exception. It's interesting. A lot of that being uh, kind of the view, in, in my colleague Amy Orr reported on this, the view kind of is that if you've done business with SoftBank in the past, whether it was related to loans or other you kind get, of this your businesses, you're getting cut in on the deal. So when you look at those big four um, banks that are leading the IPO, you've got Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Barclays and Mizuho. Mizuho, obviously a little bit surprising, but based in Asia, relationship with SoftBank, that's all kind of where all these right. have come So let's play. look at ARM, the company, the fundamentals of the company. It's not growing. No, it's actually slowing. It is more, and we wrote about I mean, this, this a few weeks ago. this is a chip company. Aren't chips and AI kind of the thing this year? But they're so heavily based in smartphones. So smartphone uh, okay. sales have been weak. They, so this is not an AI play. They're pitching it as an AI oh, play, okay. but it's still a question of how that fits in and what kind of premium will be baked in. Um, analysts from New Street kind of laid out their expectations that this thing could be worth, you know, $82 billion in three years, which is quite the pie in the sky view. But when you look at kind of, as you mentioned, the underlying growth has slowed. It's pretty much flat year over year based on their last annual sales, pointing to the global uh, semiconductor kind of glut that we've been working through. They are exposed to smartphones and home devices and not quite yet really penetrating that AI. So the pitch, flavor. when they go on the road, the pitch is we're a chip company for the phones, but we are going to be at an AI chip company in the future. And, and that's what you should be buying today. Exactly, okay. and they're pitching it as we're getting into data centers, which we know with NVIDIA has been so lucrative and is where a lot of that money comes from. So that's kind of the view of, yes, we've done smartphones, but this is where this we're This is going. not a clean deal. I mean, they're, they're gonna have to do some heavy lifting here, which it just feels like, because I've got slowing growth, I've got a buy off on this leap towards AI, which I don't really have much in the, in the numbers right now. Um, you know, I can't really look at the, as Matt was pointing out, the SoftBank valuation, because that's probably not a, a good comp, even though it just happened. Um, so there's some headwinds. It there. just happened. The SoftBank valuation was for like 64 billion, right? Yeah. And they're going to come to market at what kind of valuation? 54 and a half right now is the current high end. Yeah, that's yeah, that's crazy. Well, the other risk that a lot of investors have pointed out is China. They generate about a quarter uh, of their revenue from China through a arm called uh, Arm Technology, which isn't actually um, controlled by Arm or SoftBank. So it's kind of this standalone subsidiary with Arm China. So there is kind of a bit of a headwind, not only with pitching that future vision, but also exposure to China. All right, so what's the timing of this thing? Is there going to be a traditional roadshow? And September 13th, right? The roadshow's, pricing? roadshow's kicked off today. Okay. So we're going to see about a week-long roadshow. Pricing expected post-market. So they're not doing 13th. any virtual stuff. They're going to rubber chicken in New York and London and so on That's and so forth. That's what we're hearing. We're hearing okay. they're hitting the road. No more no more Zoom calls. So it'll Good. be interesting. To me, the more interesting happens. IPO talk is around Aramco. Even though it kind of comes and goes, they could do not an IPO, but they could raise, I guess, in a secondary, another $50 billion. Oh, wait, wait, so Aramco's talking about doing more stock? Well, I saw a story in the journal, okay. sorry, Bailey, a couple days ago, <laughs> that said <laughs> Aramco may come back to market. Now, to be fair, they, uh, in the journal, I think, cited another story from Bloomberg uh, back in March. Well, this this story comes and goes, but it could be a massive um, capital raise. With, with Brent crude at 90 bucks a barrel, I'd issue more stock, wouldn't you? They, they really want to, but they, the thing is they can't do it on other exchanges because they don't want that regulation, so they have to do it in Riyadh. 
Yeah, that's definitely an interesting, uh, interesting company, and kind of that the prospects of raising cash. Obviously, there is kind of the push, broadly speaking, for Saudi Arabia to diversify, and that's why we've seen a and lot big of big numbers. Pushes. That would be yeah. the biggest amount of money ever raised uh, selling shares, right? I mean, the stock what's the biggest IPO is like uh, Ant Group or something, right? Yeah, it's like thirty-four know. billion. Yeah. yeah. So, are we, so we got. So, from your perspective, we've got Arm. How's the rest of the calendar look in you know the next four, five, six weeks? We've got Instacart expectations will be bubbling. They filed their S one uh, a few days after Arm, as did Clavio, which is another tech company. So, these are two uh, real tests of what IPO demand will look like. When I talk to a lot of investors and bankers, they kind of see Arm as a one off, just given it's a big company, it's profitable, it's was public at it's one point. Whereas now you have Instacart hasn't been public, was really expected to go during the pandemic, but has taken quite some time in Clavio, which is another one which will be closely watched just to see how investors are valuing some of these technology companies, especially those that are primarily owned by venture capitalists, again, as opposed to SoftBank, take private, bring back public. Yep. All right. Lots of stuff. Uh, Bailey, thanks so much for stopping in. Bailey Lipschultz, she's a markets reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, bringing us the latest on uh, the deal calendar. Um, uh, one of the no notable names is uh, Aramco, uh, is ARM, A-R-M. Um, so that chip maker. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays in this market. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we were talking about oil. Again, Brent, I'll just quote the Brent stuff. $91 per barrel. That's up two and a quarter percent. I don't know what's going on. I guess it's supply and demand. Uh, but let's bring on Fernando Valle. He knows what's going on because we pay him to know what's going on. He is the energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, is it just the Saudis and OPEC buddies talking tough? Is that what's driving this crude oil higher? Well, it's been a little bit of a better demand improvement. And then people like you, Paul, who think we're going to have a soft lending and, and lower interest rates, uh, creating some momentum behind oil, uh, which... Frankly, I, I think it's a little misplaced considering that the Chinese real estate market continues to deteriorate. And I, I, I'm with Matt. I think that uh, uh, the, the, the higher interest rates are here to stay. The Chinese did start a little bit of stimulus, a little bit more, I should say, right, with the um, foreign reserves cut at their banks and they're giving money to people to pay for their kids and to pay for their parents. And it's been this, as Eddie Vandervault said, kind of a drip, drip, drip of stimulus. But is this part of um, part of the run up in the oil price? People think China's going to come back? Absolutely. China, I mean, China has come back in, in a lot of ways. If you look at just their imports, uh, they are much stronger than they were during the, the COVID zero policy in 2022. Um, but even then, we, we're we seeing some declines in, in U.S. inventories and global inventories, but we're not seeing the pace of demand that you would expect in an oil bull market, um, especially in the Western hemisphere. And then, you know, we can talk about how uh, higher rates are going to affect uh, investments elsewhere. And then the employment picture, all of those will be the ultimate determinant of oil for the remainder of the, the year. Uh, and, and we see cracks in that in that window. Um, but I think in the short term, it's been, as you mentioned, the stimuli, the supply cuts, Saudi extending supply cuts to September, uh, and then some positive uh, momentum on the U.S. inventory side. Uh, 
So, Fernando, how about our buddies in the fracking space? How come they're not out there drilling or fracking or whatever they do to... If I, I mean, if I saw WTI crude oil at 80 bucks, $87 a barrel, I'd be pumping more out. Well, I think it's uh, one thing uh, you mentioned, uh, interest rates. Yeah. Uh, yes, they're higher. Uh, so your cost to, to, to drill is significantly higher, especially for the private players. Uh, debt availability is much uh, smaller as well. And then uh, we, we've talked about this, but the efficiency in shale has really peaked. Uh, you know, our colleagues at Bloomberg NEF just put out a, a report with the productivity per well, and they were down versus 2022 levels. Why, um, why is that? Well, it's a combination of A, you've drilled some of your best acreage. Okay. Uh, B, you're not making the same advances. If you go back just, you know, over 10 years, we've been drilling longer and longer wells. We've been uh, increasing how many fracks, uh, stages as we call them, are placed in each well and we kind of peaked because we've realized that the cost benefit of adding more you know, going longer is not uh worth the price anymore we kind of hit that 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 sweet spot um and then we're, we're drilling out we're going to further and further out regions that don't have the same positive uh, geology as the core of the place by the way in terms of the spr which we uh ran down i guess to Save Americans from higher gas prices, maybe to win the midterm elections, whatever. Um, are, are we going to build that back up? Because it seems like we certainly missed the chance in terms of price. Well, there could be more chances. Uh, one thing that's certain in oil is the cyclicality. So there will be chances, but we don't really need to considering we are, you know, 13 million barrels a day of, uh, of oil output. Our neighbors to the north in Canada, 4 million barrels. That all gives you a significant cushion that when uh, we started growing the SPR to the levels that they were now, we didn't have. The U.S. was not the biggest oil producer in the world when we built the SPR to those levels. Uh, there are also commercial inventories, so we have uh, available uh, crude to, 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 to distill. The bigger concern is really some regions like the Northeast and their lack of diesel inventory uh, rather than crude itself. Fernando, does it surprise you or is it surprising to the market that OPEC plus, I guess, has this level of impact on the market? I kind of there's a time when I thought OPEC would maybe had lost some of its power, OPEC plus. I don't think that they are having that big impact. I think it's really uh, China right now and the expectations of a soft landing that are driving. Of course, they they can in a market that is so teetering on supply imbalances cutting uh, as much supply as they have will have a significant impact um but over the long term they can't fight the fed they, they don't have the balance sheet and they don't have the unity required for them to fight the fed uh if rates remain higher for a long period and drives lower investment all right if i'm an investor here i kind of thought that the energy game was was played out. I had my run in 2021, 22, kind of thought the game was played out, but no, this, uh, these stocks are rallying here. How do I play it? Do I just go out and buy Exxon Mobil or what are, you know, energy investors that you talk to, how are they playing this, this run up here? Well, that's one way there. You can also look at oil services because as we said, that we are a bit more bearish in the short term because of the demand picture. But in the long term, this underinvestment and the higher rates are leading to further underinvestment. Uh, you, you, you can find 
that uh, more areas will become commercial. So oil services and exploration might start coming back in 2024, 2025. And it might even be as your earlier conversations on Man United, it might be why uh, the Glazers are waiting to 2025. If oil prices get to 100, maybe the Saudis will give them a better offer. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yep, Saudis are everywhere these days. Mo money, I'll also no mention problems. they lost to my Arsenal this weekend, so that's probably why they're down. That's right. Wait, what's Arsenal? Is that, are you a gunner? Yes. Yes. Okay. See, look at you. Well, you, I've been listening to surveillance, so you know <laughs> right. I'm learning more and more about British soccer from Tom Keane. Yeah. All right. So what's what's kind of the the, the bear case here? Because I know if I talk to Mike McGlone, uh, your your colleague of Bloomberg Intelligence, he follows all commodities, including oil. He's bearish on oil. He thinks we go to fifty. Um, what is the fundamental bear case for for global energy? Well, I think the fundamental case is bearish for the global economy, and that's. Uh, Mike's point is that the Chinese real estate market uh, could collapse and that would drag along a lot of different industries from petrochemicals to oil. I still think that at the end of the day, uh, the oil chain looks very attractive in a long term basis. But I agree with Mike, the short term demand will be the biggest driver. And, uh, you know, you just can't raise rates as quickly and as sharply as we did without an in impact on uh, on consumption. And we're starting to see that. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of how if China gets the soft landing, that's the biggest variable. It's not even the U.S. is because we're already not having that great of a soft landing as far as gasoline consumption, diesel consumption. Those numbers are already kind of dismal. Wow. Yeah. All right. Not for us, like for you and me and Tucker. Right. Right. We're still buying as much gas as we can. Yep. Regular unleaded. That's well, how you, I tell you, well, Fernando Valley. You guys deserve a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Fernando, uh, we appreciate it. Fernando Valley, senior analyst, covers all the energy space uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Now, we've been promising to talk to you about more about cars. Nice, always. But, but from a chip's perspective, Nicole Dougal joins us. Senior VP and General Manager for Automotive over at Qualcomm. And uh, Nicole, thanks so much for your time. I'm guessing that Qualcomm is one of the biggest automotive chip suppliers in the world. Uh, lay out the, the market for us. You know, the car is going through a tremendous amount of disruption. It is uh, becoming a software-defined platform. And a big shift that is happening in, in the car, especially as it becomes electric, is the entire electrical architecture of the vehicle is changing. Bigger chips, more complicated chips, all software driven. And uh, that has created a significant opportunity for us to be able to bring our technology, our differentiation into the space. You know, Matt, I've, been I've been going to the consumer. Go ahead, Nicole. We are in autonomous driving. We are driving the cockpit of the vehicle. We connect the car to the cloud. Big opportunity. 
So I was just saying to Matt, you know, I've been going to the Consumer Electronics Show for about 30 years, and it's really not even that anymore. It's basically an auto show. In Vegas. In Vegas uh, with some uh, electronics around it. That's really the auto industry has really taken over, and it shows how technology is coming into the automobile. Um, so, Nicole, from your perspective, from the chips perspective, is the industry capable to meet the demand that this industry, that auto industry is going to really drive over the next five to ten years? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, pandemic uh, definitely highlighted uh, a gap in the uh, resilience of the supply chain. But I think uh, every automaker and uh, their suppliers have understood how to go deal with that. Uh, we now have direct relationships with pretty much all of our major automotive customers. And, uh, uh, you know, supply chain is a very complex uh, uh, part of the automaker's uh, overall business. So, a deep understanding of that part of the business is needed. It has actually allowed us to build very intimate, very proximate relationships with our automaker customers. So talk to us about the products that you make, what they actually enable in a vehicle. Um, you know, I've been seeing, I, mean, I go to all the auto shows, or I, I did before I moved back here to the U.S., and I have been seeing Qualcomm at every one. Um, what, what do you make possible that we enjoy doing in cars? So we've been connecting the car to the cloud for over 20 years. That's been our core business, you know, wireless communications. And we entered the telematics market back in 2002. Uh, most cars that are connected to the cloud today use a lot of our wireless technology. We have everything from 5G, Wi-Fi, uh, navigation systems, uh, power line communication, Bluetooth. We entered the uh, in-car experience market, as we like to call it, which is the cockpit, which is the in-car navigation. And this is a big business that has grown over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, that's about creating an experience for the consumer that is owned by the automaker. So automakers are always looking to find a way to connect to their consumers, to be able to find differentiators that pull the consumers in. As cars have gone electric, you know, you can see all of the new vehicles being launched. There is a complete change in terms of how the in-car experience has evolved. Today at uh, IA here in uh, Munich, we announced a partnership. Uh, we have cars now with BMW that are running our technologies uh, for both the cockpit and connectivity. Same with Mercedes, uh, their latest E-Class is running the, our cockpit technology and chips. So this is a trend that has started to really take off uh, globally. Uh, in a market like China, we are one of the largest suppliers of uh, cockpit chips just because of the pace at which we can move the technology. And then we entered the ADAS business, so driver assistance and automated driving. About five years ago, we announced a partnership with the BMW a few years, uh, few years ago. We are going to go commercial with them in 25. So the amount of silicon and semiconductor tech that is going into vehicles, uh, that is really expanding, and we are part and parcel of all of that uh, growth. All right, have to ask you about, uh, just because it seems like we have to everywhere, Artificial intelligence, AI, how does that kind of weave into your business and the products you're providing to the auto industry? You know, AI is uh, very much part of uh, everything that we do in driver assistance. Uh, that is the underlying technology. But the big opportunity that we are seeing as generative AI starts to become re very relevant is how cockpits become more intelligent. You know, something that we are showing here at the show is how does an automaker, as they make their enterprise much more intelligent, how do they define products that are natively intelligent? For example, if you were to design the next generation cockpit, 
would you be able to bring the user manual, which is typically something that you have as a physical copy in your vehicle? Can they just be downloaded into, into the vehicle? Is that something that the user can interact with? We started to have those conversations, really fascinating how many different things an automaker can actually do if they're able to go embrace AI across the board. Uh, the consumer experience inside the car is extremely different as you think about AI because the car is used not just going from, uh, not just to go from A to B, but also the experience that the consumer wants within the vehicle. What are they trying to do? What is the context around which they're trying to go do that specific thing? Uh, you have camera input, you have voice input that you can provide to the vehicle. That lends to the possibility to create a wide variety of experiences. And the silicon that we put into vehicles is already uh, defined to actually have enough AI capability that customers can just start to go build on top of that and create these experiences. So who are your competitors and, and where do you stand in this market? I mean, there are a lot of other uses for chips besides connecting to the cloud and talking on your phone and watching TV. I think of, you know, throttle by wire, um, electronic steering, uh, all the advanced driving assistance systems. Do you do that stuff as well? There is a wide variety of uh, opportunity inside the automotive space and we compete across, you know, so our primary focus areas are connectivity, cockpit system and driver assistance systems. That's where we see more, uh, most of our competitors. Outside of that, we are not participating in the powertrain space or in, uh, you know, the domain controller space today. So our uh, focus area are basically those three areas that I described. How about, you know, Driverless driving, I mean. Yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. Yeah. When are we going to actually, I know that in San Francisco, right, there are, right. Uh, you know, autonomous vehicles operating as like Ubers or whatever. But when are we going to start seeing this everywhere? Is it like 10 years out or is it like two years out? So look, the technology around robotaxis, I think is well proven. Waymo and Cruise uh, have had this deployed for many years in San Francisco mm -hmm. and also in many other parts of the world. I think it's really a combination of the business case. And I think it's a, a conversation around societal adoption of a robotaxi. I think, uh, you know, this is something that is definitely going to take a little bit of time. There is a cultural adjustment uh, that uh, people have to get used to. Cities have to be able to understand what it means for uh, a robotaxi, something that is driverless to fly. In terms of the utility value in terms of the benefit. There are certainly many use cases where I could see a robotaxi making a huge difference. Uh, in terms of its mass deployment in all of our cities, I think it is going to be a slower journey because uh, there is really going to be a question of consumer adoption, city adoption, how do you you know get uh, the, uh, the changes that you have to make to infrastructure, changes that you have to make to regulation to be able to make this uh, technology take off. But the great thing is that the underlying technology is actually quite mature. And uh, now it is at a stage where as you start to go deploy it, you have to be able to figure out what the kinks are and keep in So that right. journey is tough. And I think the pace will vary depending upon which part of the world you're in. All right, fascinating stuff, uh, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us. Nicole Dugal, Senior VP and General Manager in the automotive business for Qualcomm, the chip maker. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Well, if you're the big media companies out there in Hollywood, you got a lot of big issues ahead of you. Most notably, the transition from the traditional uh, distribution system of cable TV and satellites to now that this new technology called streaming, and that has a lot of long-term challenges for the industry. More near-term is you got some strikes on your hands. You got your writers striking, some actors striking. Big, big challenge for uh, Hollywood right now. Let's see uh, kind of what the legal issues are and how they might be resolved. Katie Charleston joins us. She's a founder of Katie Charleston Law. Katie, thanks so much for joining us here. Can you just frame out what the big issues there are between the writers and the big and the studios? Uh -oh, Absolutely. Thank there you for go. having me. The main issues uh, that we're looking at between the writers and the actors and the production companies are AI, for one. Uh, the writers and actors are concerned with the use of artificial intelligence, which could potentially uh, replace them. At least that's the fear. Uh, they are also concerned with residuals, uh, which is a payment structure where typically they would receive residual payments every time a rerun was shown on broadcast television, which is different than what we have today in streaming. And the last main issue is that of compensation. They're looking for complete a, a better and complete compensation package with higher salaries and health benefits included. So I can see, I can understand both sides here. I mean, certainly from the creator's perspective, the actors, the writers, this AI risk is just really, you could paint it as existential here. Be that as it may though, I would think this is something that smart lawyers like yourself could create some language to protect them no matter how the technology changes. Exactly, and that, and that is really what should be happening. Um, artificial intelligence and its use in copying or duplicating the likeness of an individual will generally not fly. State law prohibits using the likeness of someone without their permission in general, but uh, there are contract provisions, right? Each one of these writers and actors are able to negotiate their contracts and make sure that terms are in the contract that protect them from the use of their voice or likeness without their consent. Talk to us about copyright, because I thought copyright is really, for something to get copyright protection, I thought it has to be created by a human. Is that the case? And how does AI fit into that? Th that is correct. In fact, there was a recent federal court ruling that upheld a copyright, um, the Copyright Office registration rejection of a piece of art that was generated by AI. And basically the, the general rule is that you can only get copyright registration if a work is created by a human. And the production companies themselves are not going to want to use artificial intelligence like ChatGPT or Chasper.ai or any of these other tools to basically uh, replace the actors or writers themselves. Because if there is not human authorship of these works, then the, the studios will not be able to make any money, right? Because they will not be able to get a copyright, which would then allow them to protect any kind of duplication or derivatives of their works, um, which brings them profit. So how about the other stuff that, I mean, writers and actors, they care about the compensation, of course, but they also care about awards, you know, Oscars and th things like that. Can artificial intelligence, you can't, uh, you know, something written by AI is not eligible for any awards, is it? Not as of today. Uh, um, however, I, I suppose that could change in the future. But as of now, I mean, it, it is these, these actual writers and um, actors, the humans involved that are nominated and given the awards. So 
again, it just seems to this outsider that this is all something that can be negotiated. Why do you think we got to this point where, A, they went on strike and on strike for such a getting to be a long period of time now? Well, there are some things that have happened over the last several months, I think, that uh, basically emotionally charged several groups of people. Um, one being that there were some uh, background actors that have brought, come forward and, and said that they've been asked to be scanned completely oh. so that they're, um, they can be really duplicated and used without permission in perpetuity, meaning these actors, their, their identities will be used without any kind of comp compensation or terms involved. And so I think that's an emotionally charged trigger point. And I think it, well, it's, it's a real fear for these people. You can see the, the genuine nature of the fear. Um, it's unlikely that that will ever be something that's upheld, especially without the consent of the individual. And again, it goes back to contract terms. Um, but there, there's also, you know, these unions have tend to strike re regularly over the years. And I think we're at a point where overall the nation's been touched by inflation, right? Um, and these actors, a uh, group of actors that are sort of at the beginning stages of their career really are being hit with um, the emotional charge and the lack of resources and the inflation all at one time. And they are being brought together by a larger group of individuals who are more established in the industry, if you will, these big name actors that are out there um, that really, uh, they're sort of out of touch what compensation, with what compensation should look like. And so when you have these two forces joining together along with the emotional triggers, it, it really will create something like we're facing today with this strike. Is there, I mean, again, we're multiple weeks into the strike here. Is there any sense in Hollywood how long this will go, when it can be resolved? Because now you're getting to the point where, you know, shooting schedules are being materially adjusted here, and it's real money for both sides. Sure. I mean, it, it could go on for quite a while. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery announced this morning that their outlook for profits for the year are down by a projected $500 million, um, based on the strikes, and, and that sort of, uh, would assume that they're pr predicting that this will go through the end of the year. Um, so, you know, this could continue on. Really, the two sides need to come together and talk. There are viable and reasonable arguments on both sides to be made. Um, you've got these movie studios and production companies on one side where, you know, this is a business that's changing. It's an evolving industry where we're no longer looking at broadcast television where ads are, are generating these residual payments. We're looking at streaming services like Netflix and Hulu um, that allow subscription, low payment subscription options without commercials. Um, so they are not generating that ad revenue to pay uh, these residual payments. And you know, the, overall the industry just needs to come up with a better type of contract and that could take a while to negotiate. All right, we'll have to stay on top of this story. Again, major, major news for the media companies and all the folks that work with them, all the stakeholders, quite frankly, uh, involved in entertainment and content creation. Katie Charleston, uh, she is the founder of Katie Charleston Law, uh, getting us up to speed on some of the legal issues here. Again, it's uh, we saw, as Katie was mentioning, Warner Brothers Discovery warns a $500 million hit to profit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.